All right. Good morning, Four Oaks. Morning. I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. You know, I was just trying to think about what, what's one word that I would use to describe our sunset, annual sunset service every year. And this is the one that came to me, sublime. Okay, now I'm not even sure what that means, but I, it really sounds good. No, seriously, um, it is one of my favorite services of the year. Um, the, the fall weather's upon us, um, tailgating, we get to, to hang out while the sun dips below uh, the horizon and worship and sing and, and witness baptisms. It's really an awesome time. So please, would love for you to come bring some friends and and join us but this morning of course we're in matthew chapter 12 so i'm going to invite you to open your bible there matthew 12. now if someone comes up to you and says hey i have some good news and i have some bad news come on which do you want to hear first come on okay that reflected about the percentage there was one person out of a hundred okay no studies show about 80 percent of us want the bad news first and so what some researchers did because this is what researchers do they wanted to find out why and so they did all these studies and, and here's and i'm quoting from the, the the study itself here it says scientists who study timing have found repeatedly what seems to be an innate preference for happy endings we favor sequences of events that rise rather than fall, that improve rather than deteriorate, that lift us up rather than bring us down, right? That, that's what the studies show. Now, let me tell you this morning, I have some good news and I have some bad news. So, so the good news, Matthew 12 is an inspired text of the Word of God. But the bad news is, is that Matthew did not consult these studies about good news and bad news, Okay. Because last week, we left off with maybe just the most amazing piece of good news um, that, that we could ever hear. You know, I, I think as we were in Matthew 12, 15 through 21, which is really Matthew, Jesus' exposition of Isaiah 42, there was just such, um, I think, it, there, there's those times in the life of the family of God, you just sense like, you know, that was a word from God's word for us. And so many of us, I think, just resonated around that idea that there is more grace in God than there is guilt in us, that we can outrun the mercies of God, that no matter where we are, how destitute we think we are, that God's grace is always there for us. He, he never casts us out. He, he invites us in. I mean, these are, this is just overwhelming good news, and I think it resonated for, for so much of us last week. Well, the passage this week, you knew this was coming, right? It's almost like Matthew yanks the emergency break, right? And he starts talking to us and wants to talk about us, about a sin that won't be forgiven, or sometimes what is called the unforgivable sin. Now, for those of you who have like even tiptoed around this text, right? You know it's a text that for, for Christians far and wide has caused lots of consternation, angst, worry, fear, anxiety, holy and unholy terror. Oh my gosh, Pastor Paul, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin, which is always an indication that if you think you have, you probably haven't. Just a little bit of good news. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it causes lots of consternation but which if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, let me just say that is the exact 
opposite effect of what Matthew intends. See, this text this morning is not given to threaten your assurance of salvation or your eternal security. In fact, properly understood, it's meant to bolster it, to encourage it, all the while serving as a very gracious warning to those who are still resisting the invitation and overtures of Jesus. And so it's a, it's a tough text, but I think as we're going to find, as with all texts in the scripture, Jesus is right in the middle of it, and the gospel of grace permeates all the way through. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. If you can, please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house." Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, when we come to tough texts like this, we ask that you would give us a heart of faith and know that whatever is in your holy inspired word is, is for our good. It is for our edification. It's, it's for our salvation and our growth. And so, Lord, we, we ask you that you would give us ears to hear or eyes to see, hearts to receive your word. Lord, we ask that in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Please take your seats. There's three things I want to draw your attention to in this text, and they all magically start with the letter A. Aren't we happy about that? So first of all, there is an accusation in this text. There's an accusation the Pharisees are making against Jesus. Then there is an answer from Jesus or an argument from Jesus. He wants to respond to what they're saying. He wants to respond by dismantling their whole accusation. And then finally, at the end, there is an adjudication. There is a verdict. There is Jesus's, here's what I want you to take away from this interaction kind of statement. And that's going to sort of guide us through the text. So the accusation, and it's, it's the most serious of accusations that the Pharisees leveled against Jesus is found in verse 
this first little section. Let's look at verse, 30, uh, verse 22 first. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and the man spoke and saw. Now, on, at first blush, we might think, well, this is just Jesus being Jesus, right? We've seen this all over the place. You throw a dart at Matthew, you're going to hit some sort of supernatural miracle, somebody being healed, somebody, the lame walking, the blind seeing, some demon being cast out. Um, this is, seems to be one more in the litany of showing us who Jesus is, his, his, his lordship, his godship, his kingship. What's different about this one? And there is something different, I might point out, because this seems to galvanize the people and the Pharisees in a way that we haven't quite seen before. Okay, well, let's talk about the people in their response first. Look at verse 23. It says, for the people, um, for all the people were amazed. Now that word amazed, it means to be astounded, shocked out of their minds. To use some vernacular of the younger generation, they were blown away, all right? It just, they, they did not know what to do with this because it was such an unquestioned miracle. There was no hanky-panky, there was no sleight of hand, this was not David Blaine, this was not David Copperfield, this, this was the full-on real thing, obvious for all to see, and based upon that, they began to draw this conclusion, they say, can this be the son of David? Now understand, in the history of Israel, they had seen many prophets, many miracles, many supernatural things. But this was so astounding, this was so clear, this was so definitive, they began to connect the dots and to say, maybe this isn't just a prophet, maybe this is the prophet. Maybe this is the promised one that was to come from the line of David the King of Kings, our Messiah, our Lord. This is what galvanized the people. And this, in turn, elicited a response from the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, you know, they were obviously pretty disgruntled when Jesus was doing miracles. But when the people began to put two and two together and say, this is the Messiah, this was a serious problem. This was a clear and present danger. This was something that had to be stamped out at all costs. This was something that threatened their power, their position, their standing before the people, and this called for the big guns. But here's the problem. The, the problem is that even the Pharisees knew that this could not have happened apart from some supernatural work. Isn't that interesting? I want you to notice that. This miracle is so overwhelming, so compelling, even the Pharisees knew they couldn't get around it. They couldn't explain it away. So they're really left with two options, the Pharisees. And, and, and here are the two options. And by the way, these two options are the options we're always faced with when God convicts our heart of something, okay? And the first is, is, is it's actually very simple, not, not easy, but simple. The first thing they could have done is just agree with Jesus. Agree with the people. You are right. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. Make no mistake, this man is from God. However, that was unacceptable to them. Why? They would have to be humble. 
They would have to say sorry. They would have to confess their sins. They'd have to repent. They'd have to change. They might, they'd have to give up their power. They'd have to give up their, their, their position. They would actually have to admit they were wrong. And let me just tell you, that was a bridge too far. That made far too much of a claim. And sometimes when we resist the Spirit of God, let's be honest, that's what we're deciding as well. God, I'll follow you this far, but no further. It's just too costly, financially, socially, relationally, parentally, maritally. I, I, it, it's too much. And this is, so, so, so they don't go for option one. Too much at stake. They go for option two, which is, you know, this is crafty of them, it's sneaky of them, but it's completely wicked of them. They say, oh, yeah, 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 we agree. It is by supernatural power that Jesus does this, but not God's power. It's by Satan's power that this man is doing these miraculous works. And look back at the text. They say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, that word Beelzebul is interesting. Um, it, it's, a, it's a popular alternative name in ancient Jewish culture for Satan. And we don't know exactly the origin of the term, although some have speculated it comes from the Canaanite god Baal, which literally means, ready, Lord of the Flies. So you're never going to read William Golding's book the same way again, right? You're never going to watch that same movie uh, that movie in the same way. But that's what it means, Lord of the Flies. Now, I, before we look at Jesus' answer, I, I want you to notice in verse 25, and, and this, this might escape our attention, but I think it's so, so important for us independent, autonomous, sort of fly above the fray, Western intellectuals, that Jesus offers us this warning. Look at verse 25. Jesus, knowing their thoughts. You know, a lot of times we treat these religious, philosophical, spiritual topics from sort of a, a detached perspective, that we're kind of above it all, that we're just behind the keyboard, and we're sending out missives here and missives there, and, and, and we don't think much about our words. We don't think about how serious they are and the, re and the realities they, they reflect. It's easy to hide behind our, our social media apps and our phones and say all kinds of crazy, outrageous stuff. But Jesus wants to remind us of something. He knows our heart. He knows our motives. And so before we sort of cavalierly venture into this territory and saying this and saying that, we need to understand Jesus is not just concerned with our words. He is concerned with those. He's concerned with your heart. He's concerned with what's motivating you and driving you. And it's as if Matthew just wants to remind us here. That the, Jesus is not just the object of our debate society. He's not just one more spiritual figure in a postmodern context. This is, a, this is the God-man who, what, knows your thoughts, knows my thoughts, peers into our hearts, 
and he sees right through the motives of the Pharisees and understands that what is at the core of this objection is nothing more than the corruption of their souls. And we're going to see this in the way that he responds. So let's look at our second point, the argument. Now, Jesus lays out three arguments to me, to, I mean, and I don't mean just to tear down their accusation. I mean, he like dismantles it. Like he obliterates it. I mean, he, 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 he incinerates the whole thing, right? I mean, he, here, Jesus is going scorched earth and it's understandable in light of the accusation that they've made against him. What is the first thing he says? He says, first, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself how then will his kingdom uh, stand? I don't know if you guys remember this a few years ago. Uh, there was the commercial about how Coke was suing Coke Zero. Do you remember this? How dare Coke would ever sue their best drink, right? Coke Zero by far. And it's like the whole thing was an absurd because it's like obviously you're not going to sue yourself, okay? Uh, a, a general's not going to go into battle and say, okay, you guys and you guys don't fight them, fight each other just for fun, okay? It, it's an absurdity, right? We understand this is not how war works. It's not how sports works. Um, th it, this, this, is, this is not how life works. And for you to say that Satan is casting out his own demons, you've lost your minds, okay? That, that's, that's his first thing, just showing just the illogical absurdity. The second one is this. He says, if, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, what's he referring to there? See, throughout the history of the people in the Old Testament, there had been exorcisms done by prophets, by religious leaders, not just Jesus, but by prophets, by religious leaders. In fact, in Acts 19, we learn that the sons of Sceva, who were in Ephesus when Paul was there, they were also casting out demons. And any time demons were cast out, no one... Um, Everyone just assumed, well, of course the reason these demons are cast out is because it's the power of God behind it. And Jesus says, you give them the benefit of the doubt, but you don't give me the benefit of the doubt. Why your silly little minority report now? And what Jesus is wanting to, to, to reveal to them is just the bias hardness of their hearts. You see, the Pharisees have already predetermined the outcome. They've already decided whatever, whatever the facts are, we're going to manipulate, change, and comport those to reinforce the prejudice that we already have. And guys, that is called, that, that, that is the way of humanity. Um, and and I, I don't bring this up to, to make a commentary on the ongoing land dispute, history, politics of the Israelis and the Palestinians. I, just, I, just, I want to point out in this situation how this manifests itself. If you are already an anti-Semite, if you are already someone who hates Jews and have a predetermined prejudice against them or any ethnic group, by the way, then it doesn't matter what's done to them. Murder, kidnapping, rape, beheadings, you will not acknowledge it. Or if you acknowledge it, you'll, you'll say it's justified. 
You'll, 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 you'll say they, they, they had it coming. You'll, you'll, it won't matter if we show you a video up close and personal of the worst atrocities. You won't go there. Guys, that's the power of sin and unbelief. You twist facts to match what your heart has already decided is true. And guess what? We all do it. And Jesus is just exposing them for what they're doing. That, that's his second response. And finally, kind of the, the, the coup de grace. Thirdly, Jesus says, and by the way, you can't rob a house unless you tie up the strong man. Now, now what, is, what is this strong man talk? Well, you know, um, if you're going to beat an opponent, okay, win, you have to, if you're, play, you're a team sport, you have to neutralize the strongest dude on the other side, right? Everyone knows this. It, it, it's the facts. They're not in dispute. So, so in college, we would play this game where you would get one group of college dudes on one side of the pool and another group of college dudes on the other side of the pool. And you would, all you would do is put a Nerf football right in the middle of the pool and blow the whistle and the first team that got that ball and put it in the other team's drain hole. You know what I'm talking about at the end of the pool? That team won. And guess what? There were no rules. N none at all. Now, you couldn't, like, poke somebody's eye out, or at least not intentionally. You, you get what I'm saying. Well, one, one time we're playing a team, and this guy is a former defensive lineman. He played defensive line for the University of Arizona. And so our plan was very simple. Everybody go kill him immediately, Right? Doesn't matter what you do, him, do to him, wrap him up, take him to the, to the bottom of the pool, um, keep him down there for a couple of minutes, you know, whatever it takes, you've got to bind that guy if you want to have any chance of winning. And Jesus simply says this, if Satan is bound, it's because someone is greater than Satan is here. And that's me. You see, Jesus didn't go through elaborate rituals and exorcisms. And a lot of times we, we play games with this, right? Particularly this time of year. There's movies about these sorts of things and we kind of just play cute and, and play along. We got to understand, guys, th this stuff is real. No one here is going to be binding Satan anytime soon. Only one person can bind Satan and that's Jesus. And the whole point of this is for Jesus to say, don't you see what's right in front of you? Of course I'm not from Satan. That's his summary judgment here, which must mean what? I'm from God. Which means the kingdom has come. Which means what are you guys going to do about it? What, 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 what do you say? And just to show you that, that this is not academic, this is life and death, I want you to look at verse 30. I think it is actually the most important verse in this text. Not the most controversial, but it's the most important. Look at verse 30. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What is, what is Jesus talking about there? You know, recently a... a a well-known megachurch pastor and, and church hosted a, a conference. And Christianity Today, Christianity Today reported on this, so it's very public. Um, 
and it was a conference on gender, sexuality, and same-sex relationships. And what was interesting about this is that the leader of this organization made, on one hand, a big show saying, oh, yeah, 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 we absolutely affirm the biblical position that marriage is between one man and one woman, absolutely. But functionally, practically, because these issues are so complex and so difficult to sort through, we're going to adopt a, a much more affirming posture when it comes to this kind of sexual conduct. And here, here was the line from the article. He says, because Jesus didn't draw lines, Jesus drew circles. And by that he meant Jesus doesn't exclude anyone. Everyone is welcome. All you have to do is just recognize the circle is so large, it's, it's big enough for all, to which I say, amen and amen on one condition, that you repent of your sin, that you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you receive his lordship over your life. And so you better believe it. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 6, the worst of the worst can make it into the kingdom of God. If only they will turn from their sin to Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus makes a very bold assertion here in verse 30. He says, there is no neutrality. There is no detached academic observation. You can't just have a little bit of me. It's all or nothing. There, this is not a game. The, the, these are spiritual, life and death spiritual stakes are involved. And so, yes, all can come to me. All are welcome in the kingdom. This was the message from last week. If you will just come, not on your terms, but on mine. And this is where the rub is. Because the Pharisees are saying, we will have none of it. Too costly. Too, too, too hard. Guys, this is why Jesus says the road to life is narrow. Not many will pass by. That's why we have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. We, we have to say no to the values and worldview of this life in order to attach ourselves to him. And that's something that the Pharisees were just not willing to do. And the question, of course, it's not about them. It's about us, right? What will you do? What will you do when push comes to shove? And Jesus says, it's all me or it's nothing. Last point, then we're done. This brings us to the, the two most controversial verses in this passage. And it's here where Jesus pronounces an adjudication. Okay, now what's an adjudication? You know, Tallahassee for a town its size has had its share of legal drama over the years, hasn't it? Think about the 2000 election, and do you believe that that was almost a quarter of a century ago? Yep, you're old. Um, think, think about that. And, and the world was awaiting the verdict that would come out of Tallahassee, okay? This pundit says this, this pundit said that, this court says this, this court says that. Until finally, what happened? 
the court had to weigh in. And that's what Jesus does here. He said, let, 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 me, let, let me distill all this down so you can understand it. And we find it in verses 31 and 32. I want to read those again just so we have them in front of us. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, we immediately want to run to, okay, Pastor Paul, what is that blasphemy against the Spirit? What is that, quote-unquote, unforgivable sin? But before that, I, I don't want us to skip over something amazing that Jesus says here. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, meaning you're trusting in him for yourself, you're resting in him for your forgiveness, this is an amazingly encouraging text. And it's also an offer. And here's what he says. Before we talk about the sins that aren't forgiven, let me tell you about the sins that are. Jesus says, every sin, even blasphemy against me, no problem. I forgive them all. And that's important because I promise you, even if you've been a Christian for your whole life, there's probably some set of sins or some specific sin that you have in your mind that is particularly heinous. That there is no way God could forgive me of that or there's no way that God could forgive someone out there who did it like that. And, and, and usually it starts with murder, then it moves to genocide, ethnic cleansing, adultery, some people say suicide. You may look at the events in the Middle East and say what, what, what those armies, what, the, what, what Hamas is, is, is doing to, to little children. You could put all of that in a big box, and here's what Jesus says. Every sin and blasphemy, all of that can be forgiven. And do we know, you know why we know that? Because heroes of the Bible committed all of those sins and more. As you realize, Paul was not just a murderer, he was an ethnic cleanser. He was someone who went around and, and gathered up scores of Christian Jews to have them thrown in prison or executed. Do you realize David betrayed the deepest two trusts of his life to his marriage and to his people, and he had his best friend murdered um, in order to take his wife in an adulterous relationship? Do you realize that Moses killed someone? Do you realize that Abraham was such a coward that he gave up his wife to a foreign leader's concubine, to be a concubine, because he was too scared to stand up for her? And you may say, Pastor Paul, those are awful, ungodly sins. And you know what Jesus says? I forgive them all. And this, of course, comports with everything we know about forgiveness in Scripture. Just a couple of passages to remind us, right? Acts 10. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Psalm 86.5. For you, O Lord, 
are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Now, now, now get this. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus says, even blasphemy or cursing me or, or, or denouncing me, even that is forgivable. He said, so, so the, the, that, that sin against me, the Son of Man, is forgivable, but not sin against the Holy Spirit. What, what, what does he mean? Because when Jesus came as the Son of Man, and that was his self-designated term for his ministry on earth, by which the King of Kings and Lord of Lords became human and died on a cross as a servant. We see all throughout Jesus's ministry and life that people rejected him continually. The soldiers at the foot of the cross. But yet, what did Jesus say to them? Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Peter is preaching to the Jewish crowds at Pentecost, he says, you unwittingly put the Son of Man to death. But if you repent, you'll find forgiveness. As even the Apostle Paul, what does he say? I acted in ignorance and unbelief, Paul says. I didn't know who Jesus was. But see, the Holy Spirit has come to illuminate who Jesus is. He's come to testify about Jesus. And here's what we have in this text. The Holy Spirit has come and shown a massive spotlight on Jesus so that it is abundantly clear to any and all that this man is who he says he is. There is no doubt. Yet the Pharisees, now please hear this, this is, this is important. They reject him not because they don't know who he is. They reject him because they know exactly who he is. And Jesus says, that's a blasphemy. To come and be convinced in your heart and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this, in fact, is the Son of God. But in spite of that hardening your heart, and then not only hardening your heart, but leveling the most serious sin any Jew could level against another, this man has a demon. Jesus says, that's a blasphemy. What does that mean for us? You see, the people who are most in danger of committing the unpardonable sin are who? It's just, it's folks who are in this room just like we are. You see, this kind of unbelief is a special species of unbelief. This isn't unbelief out of ignorance, unbelief out of, this is knowing in your heart of hearts, yeah, yeah, Pastor Paul, I agree, I know Jesus is the Son of God. I know the gospel. I know the facts. I got all that. He is who he says he is, but not for me. I am willfully turning, hardening my heart, walking away. Here I quote, it's an entrenched refusal to recognize Jesus' divine authority. And, and church, we need to understand that is a very precarious place to be in. And it's something, it's a danger that religious folk face uniquely. Because it is possible to grow up in the church, to be in a Bible study, to recite all 66 books of the Bible, to, to do the scripture memory verses, the catechisms, to have perfect attendance. 
it's possible to, to know your Bible back, backwards and forwards and intellectually affirm, oh, yeah, 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 I believe all of that. James says, be careful that it's not merely a demonic faith because the demons do all of that and shudder. No, no, Jesus is saying when you do all of that, but yet you still harden your hearts, you are in a precarious position. And scripture spends much more time warning people in those positions than it does trying to give them assurance of salvation. That's the whole point of Hebrews 6, right? Don't keep on sinning, meaning rejecting Christ, lest there be no sacrifice for sins remaining. Listen to the warning of Hebrews 3.15. It's always a warning for us. As it is said today, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I want to end by trying to briefly answer three questions, and it's the three most common questions people have about this text. Number one is, Pastor Paul, can Christians commit the unforgivable sin? And the answer is absolutely not. When you are regenerated, you are not partially justified. You're all the way justified. Your eternal salvation is secure in Christ. The reason you can even call out to Christ and acknowledge him is because the spirit that indwells within you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We have an advocate, a high priest. Once the Holy Spirit indwells you, he can't unindwell you. This is not who this passage is for. This passage is meant to warn those who refuse to turn. So no, a Christian cannot commit this sin. A regenerate, born-again, justified Christian. Number two, and this is much more existential and personal, sometimes you may say, Pastor Paul, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I blasphemed the Spirit? I've resisted God all sorts of times in my life, and I haven't repented and changed like I should. Guys, if, you have to, if you're struggling with that question, let me just give you assurance, you have not committed it. See, the, the struggle inside of you is a testimony of the Holy Spirit and God's grace. You see, when you look at your heart and say, Pastor Paul, I don't like what I see here. I don't like what's, what's happening in my life. I will then ask you, do you want to repent? Do you want to change? Oh, absolutely, 100%. That's the Spirit. Be encouraged. It's when we become completely hardened and unaffected by these things that we need to be concerned Pastor Paul, third question, I have hardened my heart. I think this might be me. And, and let me just say that this was me, that I was all of those things. I'm so familiar with it because I lived that life. I grew up in a Christian home. I was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I was making a willful decision to walk away. It was a, it was a mockery of God. What happened? Jesus happened. The supernatural happened. God was incredibly gracious. And so I would say, if you find yourself in that position today, I will ask you, do, are, do you want to trust Jesus? Do you want to come to Jesus? 
Do you want to turn from your sin? The grace of God is open to all. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus says, if you come to me, in no wise will I cast you out. The fact that you would be struggling, the fact that you would be asking, the fact that you would be wondering is all testimony to the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so when we come to the table this morning, we don't come with a, with a cloud over our conscience of are we good enough, did we do good enough, did we commit this sin, did we do that sin. We just come with, with one posture, and that is, Jesus, I belong to you. I am resting in you. I'm confessing my sin in you. I'm turning from my sin in you. And Jesus says, you, my friend, are welcome at my table. Bow your heads just for a moment and spend a moment or two just reflecting on this passage as you prepare your hearts to come to the Lord's table. And I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.